Hi, this is Ananda, president of the Hare Krishna community near Washington, D.C. What follows is a Sunday talk recorded at our temple. Every Sunday we invite the public for meditation, a talk, and a vegetarian lunch. We'd love for you to join us. More information is available at iskonofdc.org. That's I-S-K-C-O-N of D-C dot org. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the talk. So it's my honor and privilege to be here amidst such illustrious guests in this beautiful temple of Iskon of D.C. at the lotus feet of such beautiful, gorgeous deities. Thank you all for coming this afternoon. Weekends are generally meant for chillax. But this Sunday afternoon, you decided to give your time for us and to be here and give your precious, invaluable time. I'm humbled. Thank you so much. Before I begin, I would like to chant a couple of Sanskrit prayers. They are called Mangal Acharana, meaning invoking spiritual auspiciousness. Before we start any discussion, it's prescribed that we remember all the great preceptors and teachers by whose mercy, by whose kind guidance and blessings we have all assembled here. Om Ajnanati Mirandhasya Jnananjana Shalakaya Chakshur Unmilitam Yena Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Nama Om Vishnupadaya Krishna Prashthaya Bhutale Shrimate Bhaktivedanta Swamin Itinamine Namaste Saraswata Deva Gauravani Pracharane Nirvishesha Shunyavadi Paschatya Deshatarane Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhara Shri Vas Adi Gaurabhakta Vrinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare We live in a very strange generation. We live in a generation where the communication is wireless. Cooking is fireless. The food is fatless. The sweets are sugarless. The politics, shameless. The youth, aimless. <laughs> Relationships, loveless. Friendships, faithless. Society, godless, and hence life is meaningless. Hence, to add more meaning to our lives, we have all assembled this afternoon. The topic that I'm asked to speak on is titled as the science of healthy spirituality. Now, for some, this could be a little bewildering because generally the two terms, science and spirituality, are considered to be two ends of a rod which never meet. But interestingly, really great, world-famous, renowned, accomplished scientists don't think so. Warner Eisenberg, the famous scientist who was in charge of the the principle, the uncertainty principle in chemistry. He very famously remarked, when you sip the first gulp from the glass of science, 
you think God doesn't exist. But as you keep sipping from this glass, gulp after gulp, you come to the bottom and you find God waiting there for you with open arms. Max Bohn, another great nuclear scientist, atomic scientist, when he was interviewed on his work on the atom, he had researched and found striking evidence about contents in an atom. And he was asked, what did you see in your research? Can you reveal to the whole world what was your observation? Max Born very famously remarked, in it, meaning in the atom, I saw the greatness of the creator and the creation. The famous Indian mathematician Srinivasa Ramanujan during his time remarked, an equation, a mathematical equation makes no sense to me if it doesn't convey the thought of God. So we find great scientists who have spent years, day after day, week after week, year after year, in a one-pointed scientific approach towards their research goal, coming to a point after which they don't see any human intervention. They see divinity. They see divinity. They keep performing their research and at one point they find, oh my goodness, this is so stunning. This is so marvelous that no mere mortal can create this. After this point, it is divine. You talk about physicists, you talk about microbiologists, people trying to find the origin of the universe, find, trying to find the origin of life. After one point, it's just stand still. So science and spirituality have a very good relation. Science eventually takes one to spirituality. And how about spirituality? All the major bona fide tenets in the universal faiths in this world. The principle of spiritual practice is backed by heavy scientific evidence. In the Bible, in the section of Matthew 6, 17 and 18, in the section of Psalms, Section 85, text 6, in the section of the Quran, Surat al-Baqarah, chapter 2, text 183, and so many other places, we find the same common thread, the unseen, similar, universal principles, which can all be backed by science, practiced in a spiritual practice. When I was reading through different comparative religious texts and trying to support that with scientific evidence. There was one very beautiful nerve out of the body of science and spirituality which I happened to touch. And that was the nerve of fasting. 
As I grew up, I always had heard in the traditional Indian upbringing that you ought to fast. You ought to fast from food and water. And I would always think to myself, somebody who's coming from an engineering background, somebody who has a rational, logical, scientific thinking, what is this all about? You, you tell me you can please God and you can bring in benefit to yourself by fasting? And then you find someone eating a sandwich. And you say, no, that's good. But as I was reading the biblical texts, as I was reading sections of Quran, as I was reading sections of the Vedas, I find this one common thread of the importance of regular fasting. So when I was asked to speak on the science of healthy spirituality, I said, let's start this year on a healthy note by speaking about something which is not just scientific, not just spiritual, but it's actually really good for the physical body, the concept of fasting. And with your kind permission, I would like to present the different readings from the scientific texts on this topic. Should I continue? Yes? For those who are asleep, put your hand up. <laughs> Here we go. It may get a little technical, but if you promise to stand with me throughout this discussion, it's a Eureka moment. In the study of the DNA, you have the section of the DNA at the end. There are DNA strands, and at the end of the DNA, there is a section, there is a strand, which for years, for generations, has been called as the junk DNA. Why? Because scientists thought, well, this portion of the DNA carries no information about your psychological or physiological behavior. This section of the DNA has no information. So therefore, it's junk. And guess what? They used this principle against the theory that God exists. Because they would say, if God exists, who's intelligent, and if he's in charge of an intelligent design, why would he have a section of the DNA which does nothing? Junk which means this is faulty, there is no God. But recently, as scientists were studying the DNA with great intensity and focus, they saw that there is not just one end of the DNA, but both ends which have junk DNA. So there's the strand of DNA, and to this end, the right end and the left end, you have a section which carries no information and it's part of the DNA. It's almost like your shoelace. You have a shoelace, and at the end, you have a very nice, quote unquote, junk DNA. But what does that help you? It helps us in protecting the shoelace from opening up, yes? From unraveling itself. 
So the scientists, when they studied the, the junk DNA, they said, oh, this is useful because it protects the contents of the DNA strand from opening up, unraveling, and worst, combining with other DNA strands and creating physical deformity. So they said, wow, this is amazing. It's almost like the end of a shoelace. It protects the strand from opening up. And then they said, oh, we should rename this section, and they called it the telomere. It was no longer called the junk DNA after that. It was called telomere. Now, the scientists thought we all can live forever. Why? Because the cells can duplicate themselves forever. Again, that's what they thought. The cells can duplicate and multiply unlimited number of times, which means we can live forever. But again, on further research, they got to know when the cell duplicates itself, the DNA strand also duplicates. And what happens? From the section of the telomere, a small particle is lost. Another cell duplication, another DNA replication, and the portion of the telomere is further lost. Another duplication, another portion. Another duplication, another portion. Another duplication, another portion. Another duplication, another portion. No more telomere left. Which means if the cell tries to duplicate again, the DNA strands will jumble up and death. Now the scientists saw, okay, now he can live forever. Till the time the cells duplicate and the DNA replicates until the time the telomere exists, till then we can live. And they called it as the hay-flick limit. What do they call that as? The hay-flick limit. The average hay-flick limit for a human that they found was 80 duplications. So the cell multiplies 80 times. One, so DNA replication, a portion of the telomere lost. Cell, two, DNA, two, another portion lost. Cell, three, DNA, three, another portion lost. And in this way, 80 duplications and the person dies. So the hay-flick limit for an average human was decided to be 80. So then the scientist said, actually, this is not junk DNA. This telomere is the countdown to death. 80, 79, 78, going back for, backwards, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Pfft. They tried to find out. What can be done? What can be done to increase the lifespan of a human being? We want more than 80, right? Yes, we all want. The hair flick is only 80, not 800. I want to live longer. Yes, the scientists also want you to live longer. So they said, let us perform research by which we can understand how to tweak up the Hayflick limit, by which you and I can not just live long, but live young. 
which means no need of face lifts. <laughs> Out of so many different medical options that they had, the most convincing and the most satisfying result was direct relation between the cell duplication and the calorie intake per day. And they found out that those who eat meat and those who drink, those who smoke, and those who have sex very regularly, for them what happens? The cell duplicates very fast. Meaning, DNA replication quick, which means telomeres lost quick, which means death. Or, they found out, even if the cell duplication is not fast, the DNA duplication is not fast, the portion of the telomere lost is big. Like for example, you have these counter beats. So you can either go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. So if the portion is small, you get sixteen times. Now, if the telomere lost is thick and big, one, two, three, end of story. So the scientists wanted to do two things. One, reduce cell duplication rate so that the duplication rate is low. Once many days, once in many days. Or even if it's fast, the piece of the telomere is small. Understand? Now once they related that to the calorie intake, they did an experiment. They got in 50 individuals and reduced their calorie intake to 25% of what they actually have. Which means if you can have four sandwiches, you just get one. The result was satisfactory, perfect. The cell duplication rate had come down and the portion of the telomere lost was also small. But unfortunately, people who were into that intake felt so weak that after that one week they said, we want to catch up on all those lost sandwiches. <laughs> so they came back to their regular intake. So the scientists thought, so the relation of cell duplication rate and telomere loss is definitely with intake because we could control it. But they are feeling weak. What to do? So after intense research, the scientists came to a point where they concluded that the same effect of low rate of duplication and small piece of telomere lost is found if a person fasts 36 hours without food and water once every two weeks. And by doing that, the person lives long, lives healthy, lives young. 2009, 
molecular biologists got a Nobel Prize for this discovery. It's been 5,500 years, Krishna is saying, perform Ekadashi. <laughs> when I was told as a child, you should fast on Ekadashi, and I was thinking, what? And after reading this article, I was thinking, whoa. No wonder that old lady used to tell me, fast. <laughs> According to Vedic understanding, and in reality, you find every month has 30 days, yes? Of which you have two fortnights of 15 days each. Where the moon, trans you see the moon transition from no moon to full moon, and back. The concept of Ekadashi is specific for the 11th day on both transitions. So you transit from the new, no moon to full moon, 15 day cycle, and the 11th day is called Ekadashi, the day of fasting. And then you transit from the full moon to no moon, again 15 days, and the 11th day is called Ekadashi, the day of fasting. Now the scientists said, you just got to fast someday, once in two weeks, right? You just have a 36 hour fast once in two weeks. So it could be any day, why Ekadashi? Why only the 11th day? Again, science comes to rescue. Can I continue? It is said on the day of Ekadashi, you should not have grains and beans. That's a tradition, you don't have grains and beans. So I was curious to know why. So the paper describes that grains and beans retain water. They hold water in the body. And the body is already 75% water and the grains and beans hold water, so the body is filled with water, and we all know the effect of the moon on the water bodies. In New Delhi, in India, this survey was performed. They went into a very famous hospital, and they took up the register to see the occurrence of death and the death used to occur more often on the 10th day, the 11th day, and the 12th day of both cycles. That was interesting. You have 30% death in the remaining 12 days, and 70% death on the 10th day, 11th day, and 12th day. Why? Because grains and beans retain and hold water, body is 75% water, and the 10th day, the 11th day, and the 12th day in both cycles, the pull of the moon on the water body is maximum. So all the high tides in the ocean are found on the 10th day, 11th day, and 12th day, both cycles. So any disease which is latent, which is dormant in the body, gets pulled by the pull of the moon. And if you already are diseased, it's aggravated. 
So therefore, those three days, if there is a fast observed, when we said 36 hours, we start from the sunset of the 10th day, 12 hours into the sunrise of the 11th day, and then 24 hours from the 11th till the sunrise of the 12th day. In this way, we have a 12 plus 24, 36 hour fast comprising of the three days. So when you fast like that, the body doesn't retain water because grains and beans aren't part of your intake. And as a result of which, diseases are not aggravated or pulled by the moon and dormant diseases are flushed out. So therefore, traditionally in the Vedic scriptures it is said, the 11th day is called Ekadashi, the day of fasting. When we read through scriptural texts, we think, oh, this is all just spiritual, it's all just optional, it's all religious, and I don't believe in religion. But actually speaking, forget about the spiritual side. In this talk, I'm not, a, not even going to talk about the spiritual aspect of fasting. I'm plainly talking about the effect of keeping a fast, holding a fast on Ekadashi on the material body. Irrespective of whatever your faith is, whatever your belief is, if you just fast on this day, you would live long and healthy and young. Because the duplication rate is low and the pieces of telomere lost are thin and small. So true spiritual principles beyond universal paths are all scientific. And scientific research eventually leads to the truth of spirituality. And therefore it's called research because the scriptures have already searched once. <laughs> You're doing it all over again, research. From the spiritual side, this day is called Ekadashi. Eka means one in Sanskrit and Dasha means 10. So Eka Dashi means one plus 10, which is 12, right? You need a calculator? What? Five? One plus 10? 11. Oh. Somebody awake. Those who are sleeping didn't even get the joke. <laughs> 1 plus 10 is 11. So according to numbers, it's the 11th day as we discussed. But according to spiritual practice, that 11 is very significant. Why? Because all of us have 11 senses in our body. We have the five knowledge acquiring senses by which we perceive reality in this world. We smell through the nose, we taste through the tongue, we hear through the ears, we see through our eyes, and we sense and touch through the skin. All of us? And then we have five working senses. We have the hands, legs, the sense of digestion, and the private parts. So five plus five is 10. And who's the 11th? He's that guy you can't see, but 
can't live without. You like him, you hate him, you can't ignore him. Mind. What is the mind? Doesn't matter. What is matter? Never mind. <laughs> so 5 plus 5, 10 plus 1, 11. With all these 11 senses, upavas. The general meaning of ekadashi upavas. Upavas means to fast. Ekadashi means on the 11th day. So ekadashi upavas means to fast from grains and beans on the 11th day. But the deep, profound, spiritual meaning is ekadashi upavas. Ekadashi means 11 senses, 5 knowledge acquiring senses, 5 working senses, and the mind. 5 plus 5, 10 plus 1, 11. Upavas. Vas means to reside. And upa means close. So through these 11 senses, to sit and reside through thought, word, and deed close to God. Therefore, on the day of Ekadashi, traditionally, people put everything on hold and just remembered, prayed, heard, and chanted the names of God. Because the remaining 14 days, we're having a 96-hour week. Running, 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 running. Yes, all of us? Just running. But that one day is for our spiritual connect with God. For us to connect with the all-powerful. For our benefit. So you just fast. On the physical level, you have benefit. And upavas, you stay close to God on that day and you have a spiritual benefit. Imagine you work every day without a weekend, you get tired, yes? You need a Sunday. And then you come here, listen to me and get tired. <laughs> but we all need that weekend to rejuvenate, to relax. Similarly, our digestive system is just loaded with food every single day. At least talking about myself. I know I, I can prove myself, but still. But I do eat a lot. I think he has a problem with me eating. So if you eat a lot, and don't give a break to the digestive system. It's like working all week without a weekend. So on the, on the 11th day, when we put a complete fast, eating and drinking, then it'll be a little painful, but it's a good, rejuvenating, relaxing method for the digestive system to start working. If we just overburden it, the effectivity, the efficiency of digestive system will go down, and soon we'll have digestive problems. But by once in 12, 11 days, 15 days, the 11th day fast, the digestive system gets a rejuvenating break. So performing an Ekadashi fast is actually scientific, is actually spiritual, and it's good for us on the physical, mental, and transcendental platform. On this note, I would like to stop, and I would like to request all of you to please consider my request to start this new year with this healthy beginning of a healthy practice of observing Ekadashi. And if you need help, this coming Friday, the 12th of January, is Ekadashi. Hooray!
Any questions or comments? Yes. Hare Krishna Prabhu. Yes. Uh, you spoke very nicely about fasting and spirituality, but uh, we depend on Bhagavad Gita a lot as far as spirituality is concerned. Uh, could you highlight how it is relevant in today's world? What, fasting or Bhagavad Gita? Bhagavad Gita. So I was thinking, I just spoke on how fasting is relevant. Okay, Bhagavad Gita, okay. How many of you have heard of the Bhagavad Gita before? Oh, wow. How many of you think it's not relevant? Feel free to raise your hand. You're not going to be judged. Up. Okay. Uh, not behind the pillar, Prabhu. You've got to come ahead. <laughs> and by the way, just, just a quick... I didn't pay you for putting your hand up, right? No. Uh, okay. Because just making sure. Somebody there? Okay. Two think that the Bhagavad Gita is not relevant. Any more hands there? There's a child there, three. I know you're sitting in a temple, but feel free. Okay, rest all are convinced or afraid. Either way. Okay, let's quickly speak about the relevance of the scripture. Relevance of Bhagavad Gita in an age of technology, in an age of science. Because we got to see everything, right? We got to see. We are technologists. We are scientific people who have to see how is this useful in my life. Very important question. But for that, before we address that question, I would like to take all of you on a journey back to the wisdom, ancient, historic texts of India. The Ramayan and the Mahabharat. Are you all ready? Let's travel, come on. We first go into Mahabharat. Mahabharat talks about this personality by the name Duryodhan. Have you all heard of Duryodhan? Okay. Now Duryodhan is considered to be a wicked bad man. Not Batman, bad man. Duryodhan. Yodhan means to fight and Dur means he who has a wicked intention. So he would fight for the wrong reasons or for the right reasons in the wrong intention. Hmm? Dur Yodhan. Now why do we call him bad? He had money. Money, money, money. Brighter than sunshine, sweeter than honey. He had it all. He had so much money that probably multi-billionaires would sit at his feet if he was present at the moment. Silk robes, diamond-studded palaces, lot of wives, lot of servants around. Whatever he would desire would come up on a gold plate. Now most of us would think he's living a successful life, is it not? Yes. We all want that. Yes or no? Yes. We want money. We want good food. Whatever you desire. I'm going to eat Italian today. Yes, there it is. I'm going to have Mexican today. There it is. I'm going to have Chinese today. There it is. You think of it and you have it. Food, clothing, shelter, good house, lot of money, and people respecting you as the king. He had it all. 
But there was one problem. He had an uncontrolled mind. So much so that that was the breeding ground for envy. He could not see anyone better than him. You know the difference between jealousy and envy? Jealousy is, when you have it, why not me? And envy is, when I don't have it, you can have it. And he had envy. So much envy that he couldn't see anyone better than him. During the summer afternoon when the rays of the sun used to just scorch on the head and his servant would hold an umbrella, he would say, why are you holding an umbrella? He said, to protect you. He said, no. Nobody can be above me, not even the umbrella. <laughs> even the umbrella cannot be above me. I am the best. I am the highest. Okay. So he was considered wicked for what reason? An uncontrolled mind. On the other hand, you have this personality by the name Yudhishthir who had no food, no clothing, no shelter, lived with a loincloth in the middle of the forest, eating fruits and roots, and kicked out of his position, had nothing with him. But he had something very valuable. What was it? Satisfaction. He was always satisfied in the place he was put in, which means he had a controlled mind. And the Mahabharata talks about Yudhishthir as a wonderful, noble person. You ask anyone, do you want to be Duryodhan? Do you want to be Yudhishthir? Everybody would say Yudhishthir. I asked in one assembly and they said, as far as money is concerned, I want to be Duryodhan. As far as character, I want to be Yudhishthir. <laughs> I said, you can get sweets from both plates. You get funny answers. Way of life. So Duryodhan had it all, and Yudhishthir didn't have anything. But Duryodhan is considered a thumbs down, and Yudhishthir is considered a thumbs up. Why? Uncontrolled mind in a controlled mind. Now Ramayan. Has everybody heard of Ravan? Ravan had it all. Food, Clothing, palaces, women, enjoyment, respect. He had it all. Everything that we aspire for, even before the Wright brothers came up with the concept of aeroplane, Ramayan describes Ravana would go on a gifted airplane. Wow. A private jet. Now that's pretty cool. A million years ago. He had it all. But there was one thing that he didn't have. A controlled mind. So he possessed an uncontrolled mind. While on the other side, you have this personality by the name Dasharat. Who's considered to live in a peaceful city of Ayodhya. You've heard of the city of Ayodhya? The Sanskrit meaning of the word Ayodhya means no fight. That place where there's no Yuddha, no fight. Meaning he lived in the city of peace. 
Why? Controlled mind. He lost it all and Ravana had it all. Yudhishthir in Mahabharat had lost it all and Duryodhan had it all. But Duryodhan is considered to be a wicked man. Yudhishthir is considered to be a good man. Ravana is considered to be a wicked man. And Dasharath is considered to be a good man. Why? What makes one good or bad? It's whether our mind is controlled or uncontrolled. If there's someone who can keep cool under pressure, always satisfied, doesn't get agitated even when there is an attempt to agitate him, doesn't get provoked even when there is an attempt to provoke him, doesn't get irritated when there is an attempt to irritate him, such a person has a controlled mind. We want to be with a person like that, yes? On the other hand, you could have these crazy, fanatic terrorists who could open up fire in a school. Open fire in a school. Who cares about what they have? One thing that they don't have is common sense. So what makes one happy or unhappy, good or bad, is not what we hold on to. It's not the gadgets around us. It's the mind within. Hospitals in this world can cure diseases of the body. They can cure your cough and cold. They can cure your sneezing problem. They can cure your diabetes. They can cure all of these things. But they can cure the mind. Everybody is physically fit, but has a crazy mind within. And we carry that mind wherever we go. How dangerous. I was reading in an article. On an average, the mind spins 80,000 thoughts a day. New thoughts. And you want to see an example of that? Just try to see how many new thoughts you collected right from the time I started speaking. You're sitting, but your mind is not. It's a relentless, ruthless, brutal machine which is spinning thoughts one after another. In UK, there was an article published that 60% of the employees in a corporate firm get night dreams that they're shooting their boss down. Now you're asking me what about the remaining 40%? They got daydreams. <laughs> Imagine you're standing in front of your boss and the boss sus you. So how's it going? Good. Good. That's how crazy the mind is. It's very risky. So you may say, well, I'm not in that category. But what happens? We control at that point, come home, and we yell at our spouse and our children and break relationships because our mind is uncontrolled. And there is no department of medicine which can help you pacify and control your mind. They can put you on a sedative, but that's not what you want. They can put you on a depressing agent, but that's not what you want. 
So all the different schools of thought cure the physical layer. But guess what the Bhagavad Gita deals with? It may not teach you how to cure your cough and cold, but the Bhagavad Gita teaches us the art of controlling the mind. Bhagavad Gita is the solution to all problems. Somebody may say, I have a legal problem. How will the Bhagavad Gita help me? I have a health problem. How will your Bhagavad Gita help me? I have an educational problem, financial problem. How will your Bhagavad Gita help me? Bhagavad Gita will not solve changing your circumstance. Your circumstance is not going to change. But your vision, your perception, your consciousness towards that circumstance will change. You can change things from black to white. But the aspect of being satisfied where you are and seeing the positive will come from the Gita. When it rains cats and dogs, can we stop the rain? But can we protect ourselves by pulling up an umbrella? Yes. So the Bhagavad Gita is needed for all of us. Whether we are scientists, whether we are engineers, whether we are male, whether we are female, whether we are adults, whether we are children, whether we are housewives. Whoever we are, we all have uncontrolled mind. So by holding on to the principles of the Bhagavad Gita, we pull up the umbrella of Krishna's sweet spiritual instructions by which we will be facing a downpour of distress, but none of that will touch us because the mind will learn the art of satisfaction. That is the relevance of the Gita. Yes. I have a question on Ekadashi. I am from Maharashtra too. And uh, since childhood, I have uh, uh, saw everybody um, in Maharashtra, they perform Ekadashi. And they have one uh, phrase, Gadavavani char pan Ekadashi kar. So <laughs> people start preparing Ekadashi like two, three days before, but they make so much fasting stuff. <laughs> so, so they spend their time cooking dishes that they can eat on Ekadashi. Uh, Ekadashi is the day of fasting, not feasting, by the way. Yes, so what's the question? So this phrase, what does it really mean? Like Gadva Vani Char Par Ekadashi Kar. Everybody is thinking that you can eat like a donkey on Ekadashi, but do Ekadashi. <laughs> I mean, I didn't frame it. I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know where that came from. But the main intention of Ekadashi if you want to fast, you do a good fast. Even if on the, on the physical layer of your body, keep a good fast. Let the digestive system have a complete break. Give it a complete Sunday. Don't say you're going to have a weekend, but hey, you got to work from home. Yeah, so that's the intention. But you also have to see the health. That's a very good point that I was reminded of. Depending on our age and our health condition, we also have to make sure that our Ekadashi fast is accordingly, it's, it's like a, it's like a, 
a spectrum, a range of different layers or levels of fasting that you could do. The best you could do is a complete fast without food and water. But if that's going to keep you so weak that you're going to sleep 15 hours a day, then we lose the essence of it. The next layer level a bit down, lower than that, is you can at least have water. A level lower than that, okay, you can have water and fruit juice. A layer lower than that, you can <laughs> have it all except grains and beans. And by the way, there's nothing lower than that. <laughs> so, yes, at the back. So different days have different deities. It just so happens that the deity of Akadasi is Bhakti. Um, so uh, is there anything that you would like to share on the astrological considerations that doing, for example, material activity is considered to be impaired? Uh, at least that has been the general impression and that doing good deeds or Bhakti is empowered. So do you want me to comment on why it's the day of uh, bhakti, or do you want me to comment on the comparison between material activity and spiritual activity performed on Ekadashi? The astrological or the insights of the empowerments, both in bhakti I'll or have to get to the chart then. <laughs> we could definitely discuss this offline, because it can get a little technical, and I'm not sure how many of them would get it. But anyway, the general understanding is that, as you rightly said, as you rightly said, every day has a specific deity. From Pratipad, Dvitiya, Tritiya, Chaturthi, Panchami, Shashti, Saptami, Ashtami, Navami, Dashami, Ekadashi, Dvadashi, Trayodashi, Chaturdashi, and Purnima. Those are the 15 days back and forth. And then, of course, Amavasya, the no moon. And the 11th day is considered to be... Not that the deity is Bhakti, the deity is Vishnu. And Ekadashi is Bhakti Janani, the mother, Madhavatiti Bhakti Janani, Shuddha Bhakta Charana Renu, Bhaktivinoda Thakur explains. That the day of Ekadashi is actually <clears throat> the day of Hari, going back to the Padma Puran, the Garga Samhita, the Brahma Vaivarta Puran, the different historical evidences of how Ekadashi is that specific time which actually doesn't exist, but Krishna manifests that time to do good to others. Hmm? So that deity is Krishna. And anyone who fasts on that day automatically gets bhakti. So it's like Ekadashi is the mother from whose womb the baby comes. The baby is bhakti. Hmm? So that is one. And as far as the astrological significance of Ekadashi, we will talk at great depth. Yeah. All right. So I think we'll wrap it up. <laughs> Hare Krishna.